Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our new report, Reimagining the MQ-9 Reaper. The report was crafted by retired Air Force Major General Larry Stutz, Stutzream, our Director of Research here at Mitchell. As the title suggests, Reimagining the MQ-9 is about the value of this weapon system and its airmen in a much greater context. Congress has repeatedly rebuffed Air Force plans to end Reaper buys short of long stated requirements. There are also plans to retire the Reaper much earlier than expected. Now the challenge with RPA capabilities is that most folks don't understand the effectiveness that they've experienced in the missions where they've dominated for two decades now. Those missions are gonna continue. And it's also important to recognize that the MQ-9 Reaper has the lowest cost for effect in its ISR strike mission set. This report suggests the Air Force needs to open its aperture a bit and reimagine the Reaper's value to preserving high-end aircraft for the high-end fight. Additionally, there's opportunities to use this capability to fill requirement gaps in support of peer competition. Now, to provide additional perspectives, we're pleased to have with us three thought leaders from distinguished think tanks here in the DC area. Todd Harrison is the director of the Aerospace Security Project and Defense Budget Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, otherwise known as CSIS. From the Hudson Institute, we have Brian Clark. Brian's a senior fellow and director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. And from the RAND Corporation, we have Dr. Caitlin Lee, Associate Director, Acquisition and Technology Policy Center. So welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us today. What we're gonna do is start with a presentation on the report um, from Stutz, followed by brief remarks from our guest panelists and then we'll move on to your questions and answers. So with that bit of a background, Stutz, over to you for the presentation. Okay, thanks, boss. So let me set the stage. We all know the Air Force is in a tough place and it's got to recover from a couple of decades of poor choices uh, in the Department of Defense that deferred so much of its modernization. Uh, and so there's now an avalanche of programs to resource and 2023 looks like a train wreck for the Air Force. And it's clear DOD is unwilling to correct the service share of the budget that the Air Force receives. And so the Air Force is coloring inside the budget box. Uh, the strategy is to cut legacy aircraft to free up resources to fund modernization, very simple. Uh, and this is all about the pivot to China, China, China which uh, of course are, is the Secretary of the Air Force's top three priorities. And the MQ-9 Reaper is in the sights of this plan. And there's two problems with this. One is despite the soldiers coming home from Afghanistan and the downscoping of Iraq, the uh, Reaper squadrons remain 100% committed. Uh, these airmen of the unmanned age are unlike any others and they've been on continuous combat operations uh, from the start, unlike any other unit. Uh, so these operations are going to occupy the Department of Defense for a long time to come and just look at the statements of combatant commanders who say they want more Reaper, not less. 
So the second thing is that, you know, we support a replacement for the Reaper, of course, but it's just not feasible in the budget environment. And there's been many times we've talked about a replacement for the Reaper, but they, it always gets out prioritized by budget concerns. So before I launch into the slides here, you know, I want to say that at the apex of strategy is this principle that one can use the things one has in new and innovative ways. And so that's what we want to talk about here with the Reaper. So uh, I do want to call out, uh, we had, had a lot of support from operators in the uh, MQ-9 Reaper. Uh, they've been an inspiration for this study, whether it's the Marauders up at Ellsworth or the Griffins out at Cannon or the Ghost Warriors at Holloman uh, or the Hellhounds at Whiteman. These are war fighters who stand shoulder to shoulder with any uh, bomber pilot, airlifter, or fighter pilot. They are in it to fly, fight, and win. So with that, Anna, could I have the first slide, please? It's, it's amazing to me that a lot of people really don't understand what this unmanned age is about, and especially the RPA. And it's simple, three things. We have the uh, persistence, uh, about 20 hours in the Reaper and with its uh, bigger wings, about 40 hours it can stay to do ISR and strike. It's very low cost, being the lowest cost uh, to operate airframe in the US Air Force inventory. And it's unmanned, which of course, allows commanders to have a broader set of options that don't place airmen in harm's way. The history, the history of it, it's interesting because, uh, and you can see the quote by John Deutsch, the unmanned era was forced into the Department of Defense by a couple personalities. And I also point to General Johnny Jumper, who later became chief, who uh, pushed the, both the Predator uh, and then the Reaper into the inventory. And from there, the airmen have taken it to new heights. Next slide, Anna. So again, here is truly this dilemma the Air Force has, and, and they need to transform for the threat. I think we all understand that. The resourcing is quite the challenge. And if you look at this chart on the right, that light blue line reflects the Air Force's funding. When you take pass-through, that is a chunk that's accounted for in the Air Force budget, but the Air Force has no control over. You can see for 30 years, the underfunding of the Air Force, and that is the dig out that Air Force leadership is right now trying to deal with. And at the bottom there, of course, as I said before, these operations that the Reaper does so well are not going away. Anna, next slide. So again, the strategy is to cut legacy force structure not considered relevant for the highly contested fight to finance modernization. And once again, the Air Force thinks that it's ready to retire the Reaper starting in 2030 and have it in the boneyard by 2035. I already referred to the feasibility of uh, replacement, not probably in the cards in the next eight years. But this study really showed that there is quite good affordability and ease of adapting the MQ-9 weapon system for new uses, as well as adapting it in increased threat environments. And that makes the MQ-9, we find, one of the most relevant aircraft in the Air Force inventory. Next slide, Anna. I want to step back and just take apart three narratives that are uh, really inhibit 
a discussion about RPAs in the Air Force. One is that the Reaper is challenged by its survivability in the highly contested or contestant threat environment. Well, that's not what we want to do with Reaper. We want to continue it in the mission it has. We know it's not going to go downtown Beijing. But if you compare it to an F-16 minus its self-protection and threat warning, uh, we can kind of see the Reaper is at a disadvantage. So there does need to be across time some investment in, in that for the Reaper. But it can also serve on the fringes of the deterrence and operations that support highly contested conflict. From a cost effect perspective, nothing comes close. If you look at that uh, chart to the right, Guam's in the middle there. There's some great analysis, uh, both in the paper and done uh, by Brian Clark, who's with us, of course, uh, on deterrence by detection and wide uh, area surveillance. If you want to fly a thousand miles out of Guam and put up an orbit, 24 hours and you're using uh, current large body ISR aircraft, or you configure a Reaper to do the same mission, the Reaper costs one-tenth of what it costs. And then the other narrative is that the Reaper is not adaptable, and this is absolutely wrong. Uh, unmanned aircraft actually have low developmental risk, but there are so many existing demonstrations and experimentation with new capabilities. Uh, that are out there. We, we, we really inventoried a lot of these in the paper, but they range from, you know, auto takeoff and landing. There's been demonstrations of laser comms from satellites directly to the Reaper, uh, orbits deep into the Arctic where we have no eyes and so forth. Uh, the RPA community, the airmen are highly adaptive and innovative, as is the airframe. Next slide, Anna. Thank you. So this brings us to what we feel uh, at the second bullet there, the, the Air Force needs to consider as it thinks about the MQ-9 and the airmen that fly it. Uh, first is that cost per effect analysis. If we look to use other aircraft to do what the MQ-9 does today, it's go going to break the bank. Secondly, there are other missionaries in emerging gaps that the MQ-9 uh, can fill, and we'll talk about that shortly. Uh, and we can see the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Army buying MQ-9s to fill gaps, requirements gaps in developing CONOPS that they're operating as they also pivot to the high-end fight. And then the Air Force could consider how the MQ-9 preserves high-end aircraft, such as the fifth-generation fighters and so forth. Uh, and then, of course, We've already talked about the feasibility of developing an alternate or next MQ-9 replacement. Next slide. I've already talked a lot about the airmen. Uh, I, I can't do enough to cheer them on, uh, but I do want you to look at that triangle at the top right of the slide. There is a very interesting relationship between airmen, industry, and technologists in the MQ-9 Reaper. It's, it's probably the most developed uh, in uh, the SOS, the Special Operations Squadrons. But this is something that's a model for the rest of the Air Force. And we can foresee that AFRL's uh, Transformational Capabilities Office and the WarTech process could work very closely with MQ-9 to very quickly bring new technologies, transformational technologies to improve this airframe. Next slide. So when you reimagine the Reaper, uh, and think about 
ways it can fill critical gaps. We've come across these seven areas. And, uh, and once again, in these seven areas, we believe the Reaper is easily adapted to do a lot of this. And as I said before, there's been a lot of demonstrations of, of integrating technologies into the MQ-9 that bring us closer to doing these, filling these gaps. First, wide area surveillance, I referred to it before. I'll leave that to Brian, he's an expert there. Air and missile defense, especially base defense, as we know is a huge gap. Reaper could be used to not only provide a sensor over the field, but with increasing levels of automation and technologies now that are out there, Reaper could actually manage, auto-manage uh, an umbrella of protection over bases, especially as we think about the distributed operations we're talking about in the Pacific, Indo-Pacific. Uh, Brian's also an expert in maritime and littoral operations, but Reaper can uh, uh, provide surveillance and in, 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 in support to uh, anti-surface warfare and other missions that are out there. And uh, by the way, I wanna step back and say, when we talk about adaptability of this weapon system, we can adapt the entire system. It's not necessarily to use, for example, the manpower footprint when Reaper is used in some of these other areas that may be quite reduced. Communication relays, we look at JADC2, ABMS, and of course work Heather Penny's done here at Mitchell on Mosaic Warfare, and getting processing, getting communications, having resilient communications in these wide expanses, Reaper can certainly fill that gap. The next two are a bit scary, and uh, General Van Herk at Northcom has is, is spoke out uh, a lot about this, and that is we don't have the Arctic domain awareness we need, and we have Russian cruise missiles uh, that can launch from Russian soil and truly threaten the homeland. General Van Herk has spoke, he, he's worried. He doesn't have decision time to detect and respond in that we would have to rely on point defenses against these cruise missiles. So we see that the Reaper could be, could be adapted to provide a web of detection uh, in the near term to be able to sense and with the demonstrated uh, ability to shoot air-to-air -air missiles, maybe even add firepower to the Air National Guard units, which will be intercepting uh, cruise missiles in, in that con-op. And then finally, the last I'll say is defense support of civil authorities. We all know that uh, uh, seeing in the aftermath of a disaster, uh, what's going on is important to save life. Next slide. These are recommendations. Quickly, I'll run through them. Uh, yes, self-protection to deal with advancing threats. We're not talking about MQ-9 being survival in highly contested environments, no, but it does need to have that uh, uh, adapted. And then the Air Force hasn't done a good study on new uses for MQ-9 Reapers. This is important. That's why we think Congress should direct this. Uh, there's a program in the Air National Guard called the Ghost Reaper, and it facilitates a lot of the technology development and concept development that go into those seven new uses of, uh, of the MQ-9 that I referred to in the previous slide. And we should expand that program. Again, the engagement of Russian cruise missiles is critical. Detection in the Arctic, Arctic domain awareness is critical. Not only should we think about this, but it's time for a demonstration. The technologies are there, they're on the shelf, and this should uh, be an aggressive uh, initiative 
to check it out. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to the second to last. Uh, it's important that to understand the Air Force is never going to have the capacity to do all the ISAR needs. So we encourage the Air Force to work with the COCOMs to really talk to partners and allies about the potential to have their own MQ-9s to surveil in their areas of interest. That's important to us, it's important to them. And finally, Congress and the Air Force need to step back and make sure that they properly manage the Air Force RPA community of airmen. Uh, I refer to the shutting down of a couple squadrons of the MC-12 in Afghanistan uh, when that mission was given over to the Army. And I interviewed a number of the uh, superb combat experience pilots that in that, that disruption separated from the Air Force. We can't have that happen. We need to preserve those airmen to be our on-ramp to the increasing levels of autonomy in the age of era of unmanned aircraft. Next slide. So in summary, uh, we believe that the study really shows that Reaper is more relevant today than most of the other aircraft that are in development or on the ramp. And the Air Force needs to carefully consider that it will still be the most cost-effective aircraft to do the missions it's doing today. And there's a broad range of existing and new requirements that it could be used uh, to fill in the future. And that concludes my briefing, boss. Okay, well, thanks very much for that uh, overview, Studs. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know, Stutz and I were running the Combined Air Operations Center in 2001, pushing the frontier on time-sensitive targeting uh, that placed the MQ-1 Predator and its crews and intel experts at the heart of innovation. Um, we, we were there and oversaw the first combat use of a weapon off of a remotely potted aircraft on October 7th, uh, 2001. That's a story all on its own, so we'll save that for another time. So now let's get some perspectives from our guests. And uh, up front, uh, let's uh, go to Todd Harrison. Todd, over to you. Hey, thanks, General Deptula. Uh, great to be part of this discussion today. And I, I think, you know, where I want to start from is really looking at this from a budgetary perspective, right? Because, you know, as you've seen from you know the previous presentation and, and many of you, you know, as part of this uh, discussion today are well aware uh, the capabilities provided by the MQ-9 are in exceedingly high demand today. That's not in question. So why would the Air Force even be considering uh, retiring this platform in the next few years? And the, the truth of the matter, the answer is pretty simple. It's because of budgetary constraints. And you look at the overall trends, not just in the DOD budget, but in the Air Force's budget in particular. Um, and there are a lot of constraining factors that are forcing the Air Force to have to make some difficult decisions in the coming years. Uh, and so you've heard about this idea, this concept of divest to invest, right? That is a budget-driven uh, concept. And it's painful, it's disruptive, um, but we've got to look at, you know, if that becomes necessary because of higher growth in personnel costs, because higher growth uh, in operating uh, cost of different types of aircraft, uh, and of course, all of these modernization needs throughout the Air Force, you know, uh, modernizing bomber fleet, the fighter fleet, the ICBM force, you name it, tankers, trainers, all of these big modernization bills coming due, um, 
you know, I, I, the reality is we probably are going to have to do some divestment uh, within the Air Force, like it or not, unless we get some huge budget increase, which doesn't appear to be coming. So then the question's got to be, where do you focus those divestment um, you know, decisions? And that's where, to me, it does not make sense uh, to be retiring the MQ-9. There are lots of other platforms I would retire before this uh, if push came to shove. And the reason for that is you looking at the data, um, the, the cost of the MQ-9 is really attractive. You know, my own analysis, I've gone back and looked at this, it is the lowest cost platform in the Air Force inventory, really, no matter how you cut the data. The cost per tail per year is the lowest for the MQ-9, lower than any of our other aircraft. Uh, you look at the cost per flying hour, the cost per effect, it is you know, an exceedingly attractive and affordable aircraft. You also look at like the mission capable rates of the aircraft, because that's an important factor. It's the highest in our inventory. Uh, we keep this plane running nonstop. And another critical factor, it's often overlooked, is the utilization rate. How many flying hours per year per tail that we get out of the aircraft, it far exceeds anything else in our inventory. Um, other thing that I look at that I think is really telling uh, is you, you look at what happened to other crewed ISR aircraft and their utilization rates, how many hours they were putting on their aircraft um, per year, things talking to like the U-2, uh, MC-12s and other things. You look at how they were being utilized as we brought on the, the MQ-1s and then the MQ-9s, um, and you did not see a reduction in the utilization of these other crewed ISR aircraft as you know, the Predator and Reaper fleet came online and you start seeing more and more overall flying hours. Uh, that is because there is insatiable demand uh, for the types of data uh, that are coming from these aircraft. And that ought to tell us something. There is an insatiable demand for ISR right now, and that is only going to continue to increase in the future. So the Air Force has actually got to be asking itself, how is it going to meet that demand or even try to meet some fraction of that demand? If you're in a budget-constrained environment, you've got to be looking at cost-effective ways of meeting that demand out into the future. And this is a you know, we're talking steady state peacetime demand that is a driver of this right now. Uh, and, you know, it's not just in CENTCOM, it's in Indopaycom, it's in Southcom, it's in AFRICOM, it's all over uh, where we're, we're getting this demand signal. Uh, and, and that's not going to change. It's only going to increase. And even a focus on great power competition, uh, we are still going to have higher and higher levels of that peacetime steady state ISR demand. Um, and so that's where I think the MQ-9, you know, remains a very attractive platform to take on these missions and, and really, you know, be the workhorse for the fleet. But then also, as Stutz, you know, is talking about in the report and in his briefing today, there are a lot of other missions that the MQ-9 can support as well. Some of that may take, you know, small amounts of investment uh, to upgrade the platform, to give it new capabilities. Some of it is just we need to re rethink about how we, how we operate the platform and how we use it uh, and what missions we are using it from. And because it is a multi-mission platform, um, that makes it increasingly attractive because it can start to offload the workload 
from some of these more expensive, exquisite platforms that we absolutely need in our inventory, but we can't afford to burn up those expensive platforms doing missions that platforms like the NQ9 can do more cost effectively uh, for now and, and for the foreseeable future. So, you know, ultimately, I, I think the MQ9, you know, uh, fleet is a way, it's a cost effective way for the Air Force to maintain its capacity. Uh, of, of key, you know, high demand capabilities, and to help support the readiness of other parts of the force, uh, where we are seeing, you know, really, you know, uh, troubling readiness shortfalls. So, you know, from a cost perspective, uh, for me, this is this is kind of a slam dunk. If you want to look to retire platforms in the Air Force inventory, I can give you a list of things. So you ought to start looking at, and this is not on that list. Um, you know, hopefully, we don't have to make those kind of tough choices. Um, but you know, I, I think re, you know reimagining how we use the MQ9 fleet in the force uh, is going to help us minimize the tough choices we have to make going forward. Hey, thanks very much for that, Todd. Let's uh, now uh, hand it to, over to Brian. Uh, thanks a lot, Dave. Uh, I appreciate being here. It's great to be here with Stutz uh, and also with Caitlin and Todd, whose work I greatly admire and read uh, with interest. So uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate this opportunity. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the MQ-9 uh, and its applicability to the high-end mission. I think a lot of times we sort of discount its utility in high-end warfare uh, because we either think it's not survivable uh, or because we think it's got um, you know limited payload capacity or you know, whatever it's whatever the concerns are. Um, but I think there's a, a, a lot of ways the MQ-9 can contribute to high-end missions that we've sort of left on the drawing table and we need to bring out and actually employ it for that. Uh, so first of all, uh, Stutz brought up the idea of mosaic warfare and that's an area that we and Mitchell have both been working on over the last few years. Um, that, that's all about disaggregating the force, uh, whether it's the Air Force or the Ground Force or the, the Naval Force, into a larger number of smaller objects or systems, uh, getting away from having a force that's entirely of large monolithic multi-mission platforms and starting to disaggregate it into a larger number of, uh, of systems. That gives you more adaptability in the force, gives commanders more options, uh, it makes the force more resilient. Uh, and from the enemy's perspective, it gives the, a, a lot more uncertainty with regard to how you're gonna use the force or compose it. So from the Chinese perspective, that more disaggregated military presents a lot more options that they're gonna have to contend with and prepare for that increases the likelihood that they're going to be maybe deterred or dissuaded. So that idea of mosaic warfare kind of pervades uh, the three missions I wanted to talk about, where we th I think there's going to be a lot more utility for the MQ-9 going forward, you know, with some modest adaptations, as uh, Todd was mentioning. Uh, so the first one is, is ISR&T. So Studs brought up the idea of deterrence by detection, uh, I think. Uh, the key to deterrence by detection is having a kill chain that you can actually execute. So you're only going to deter somebody by detecting them if they have a realistic expectation that there's a weapon on the end or end of that detection. Uh, but I think the MQ-9 can contribute there quite a bit. So the work that the uh, Marines have been doing with MQ-9s uh, in uh, places like the Philippines to be able to provide a targeting mechanism for counter maritime operations. Um, they've got the whole kill chain with, uh, with uh, missiles ashore with a naval strike missile that will allow them to close that kill chain and actually achieve some of that deterrent effect that detection might provide. So ISR&T in that context is useful. And then you'd say, well, is the MQ-9 survivable in that environment? Well. Uh, you know, maybe not uh, once, it, once it turns into a high-end war, but neither is the P-8 or the EP-3 that we would also be using for that exact same mission. So it's not a matter of 
MQ-9 versus some theoretical sur surveillance platform that's survivable, it's you know, MQ-9 against something that's more expensive and uh, is manned and arguably just as vulnerable. So the MQ-9 can provide that, that, that surveillance and targeting capability for the counter-maritime that we currently use uh, a very expensive platform to provide, um, to Todd's point, and one that's very vulnerable and we can't afford to lose. So if we, need a, if we want a more resilient force, we need to have a larger number of uh, surveillance platforms to do this counter-maritime targeting. That's what the uh, MQ-9 could provide us. Uh, but that's kind of table stakes, I think, in a lot of ways, because we already use the MQ-9 for, for surveillance and targeting today. And I think there's a couple of missions where we could really use it as kind of a game-changing capability that really um, alters um, both how we do a mission and also the enemy's calculus for how they counter us. So the first one is uh, airborne early warning. Um, so today, uh, airborne early warning is done largely with manned aircraft with big radars that emit and make some beacons so that they can get shot at by enemy um, anti-radiation homing missiles. Um, that They're a vulnerable, vulnerable platform, the E3, the E2 Delta, um, and uh, they're gonna be uh, challenged to be able to operate anywhere close to China in the event of a conflict with the PLA. The, a way to get around that is to, okay, move to passive sensing to an increasing degree to you do AEW, airborne early warning with passive sensors like ELINT sensors, SIGINT sensors. Um, EIRST is a component of that as well. Uh, well, as we move to those passive sensors, they don't have nearly the range, uh, maybe of an of a airborne radar. Uh, we need to have a larger number of platforms to do that surveillance. Um, moreover, um, we need to have platforms we'd be willing to put into that threat environment and potentially lose in the course of the operation. Well, the MQ-9 can provide you that passive surveillance platform to give you a network that provides the AEW capability we need in that long gap that's going to emerge between the Chinese coast and the places where E3s and E2s can operate. That airborne early warning capability you know, could be uh, sufficient to give you the warning you need of a uh, incoming missile attack or incoming bomber attack. Uh, in the wargaming we've done on the naval force, uh, it provides a big difference in your ability to actually defend against bomber attacks because now you can shoot the archers before they start shooting their arrows because you know where they are. Um, and today we wouldn't be able to do that because the E-2s would not be able to get close enough to China to be able to do that airborne early warning mission. So the MQ-9 equipped with EIRST, equipped with passive uh, ELINT sensors could provide that capability and it could fly from places that are uh, su survivable in this kind of wartime environment. They could fly from the second island chain in and conduct these orbits to support that mission. The other mission I want to talk about is anti-submarine warfare. So we did a study last year ex explicitly on the use of unmanned systems to disrupt the way that the Navy does anti-submarine warfare. Um, the Navy has some huge gaps today with anti-submarine warfare with regard to scaling that capability to address the threat, um, enabling it to be persistent over time, and then having it operate in a threat environment. Uh, so today we do anti-submarine warfare with uh, P-8 Poseidon aircraft that drop sonar buoys uh, when they get a cue from some other sensors like a SOSIS array or from a, an ELINT hit that you got from a satellite. And then those P-8s have to sit there and, 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 and service that sonar buoy field and then attack the submarines at some point when they get detected and tracked. That P-8 is going to have to orbit in a place where it's going to be extremely close to the Chinese mainland. So the places you're going to do anti-submarine warfare are the first island chain and the choke points within it. That's really too close for the P-8 to operate because it could easily be uh, engaged and attacked by fighters coming from the Chinese mainland. We need something that can, that can be used in that environment. And if we lose it, we're accepting that loss. The MQ-9 can do that mission. They can deploy the sonar buoys. It can serve the, uh, service the sonar buoy field. You could even equip them to be able to launch attacks against submarines to suppress the submarine operation, drive them back into the uh, through the first island chain into their home waters. 
Um, moreover, the problem we're going to run into with China is the large number of submarines because uh, they could flood the zone and essentially force us from uh, being able to do a man-on-man -man defense like we do today against submarines to a zone defense uh, against submarines. We don't have enough submarines of our own to do that. They've got other jobs to do. We don't have enough, enough surface combatants to do that. So to scale that operation, we need a platform that scales that we could buy a lot of and that we could deploy quickly and not have uh, limitations due to manpower. So the MQ-9, because you can have one operator run two or four or even six MQ-9s at a time, might be able to manage multiple MQ-9s doing the anti-submarine warfare mission. That operation could also be managed from the P-8 that would be operating at some remove where it's able to be safely uh, sustained and protected from enemy attack. So that man-to-man -man teaming you get with the MQ-9 and the P-8 could allow you to do that anti-submarine warfare mission in a way that's acceptable from a risk standpoint, because now you can put those MQ-9s closer, and it's, accept and it's able to scale with the scale of the threat. Um, that's something we can't do today. And when we have the same situation with regard to Russia in the GIUK gap, um, that the problem we have is scalability. And I think the MQ-9 would allow us to get that scale that allows us to deal with a large-scale threat on the, on the part of the Russians that's quiet and requires a lot of resources to address. Today, you have to mobilize practically the Atl entire Atlantic fleet to go do that operation. Uh, with the MQ-9, you could actually deploy those very quickly and be able to stain that and even do track and trail of that submarine as it proceeds towards its eventual deployment location. Um, and track and trail of unlocated submarines is a huge problem we have right now, and there is no solution. So I'd offer that the, the MQ-9, uh, not only does it help with this mosaic warfare idea, but it helps fill these gaps in AEW and ASW that we don't have a good solution for today. There really is no way to do those missions in these threat environments without it. So uh, thank you very much for that opportunity and back over to you. Yeah, hey, thanks, Brian. Uh, those are uh, great observations, particularly the scalability and how uh, MQ-9 can help in that regard. Uh, and so wonderful to hear them. And now over to you, Caitlin. Thanks, General Deptula. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today uh, with such a great panel and also such an awesome audience. Hi, General Cantwell and all the other 18Xers, Reaper, Global Hawk, RQ-170 pilots out there. Um, humbled that you all are here today. This is awesome. So I'd like to say that I'm going to provide a contrarian view and talk, you know, not beat up on the Air Force about Reaper anymore. But it's hard. I mean, I actually agree that the Air Force could gain a lot more utility out of the Reaper today than it actually has been doing to date. And so I do think what I can provide is a little bit of a different perspective. So I'm kind of coming at this from my background, studying the history, culture, and um, doctrine of the Air Force, and also sort of looking at the causes and conditions uh, under which military innovation occurs. So when I look at this, you know, Todd, you mentioned it's, it's all about the budget. And I would kind of, to be over the top about it, come back and say, it's all about the culture. So what I want to talk to you all about today is how Air Force culture has sort of wrestled over time with integrating unmanned systems and the implications that can sort of have for the Air Force's um, ability to innovate in the Reaper, but more generally, its organizational capacity for innovation going forward. Um, so I want to just uh, uh, tell you about two different kind of, there's many, but two different prominent strains in Air Force culture that I want to talk about today. And one is, I think, uh, and this goes back to the earliest days of the Air Force, it's a bit of an original sin, um, a tendency to sort of reject, reject drone innovation. Um, this is not to say that the culture is a monolith at all. There's also been some prominent aspects of it, uh, great support for technological innovation, of course. So it's a balance. But I think in the end, it is really important, you know, looking at, you know, my research on Reaper and especially its old 
cousin back there, the, the predator, um, we really do need to think about um, the checkered past that the Air Force has had with drone innovation and how that is tied to culture in some really important ways. So um, I wanna start with a little bit with the negative aspect of this um, and tell you where this tendency to reject drone innovation has come from. And um, without getting into all the gory details, essentially, you know, since the Air Force's beginning, there's been this tendency to prioritize manned aircraft and manned aircraft pilots as sort of essential elements for winning wars. Um, related to that, there's been sort of a, a norm towards a very traditional view of the warrior ethos, which is really bent around the, built around this idea of you have to put oneself in harm's way to demonstrate valor. And these are really important values and norms in the Air Force. And um, there's nothing inherently wrong about them. The only trouble is that there's a huge tension there, you know, with unmanned systems. So um, as, as the Air Force has tried to innovate over time and over its whole history, this tension has emerged again and again. I think you, you saw it, you know, going, going way back in Vietnam, you know, we managed to deploy, deploy thousands of lightning bug drones to theater and then watch that capability and the organizational capacity to deploy those assets completely die on the vine after the war. And we really didn't see much more drone innovation until really the late, mid to late nineties with Predator. Um, and so, um, and when we did see it, and even after 9-11, I think the Air Force kind of still really struggled with it. There were still a lot of missed opportunities there. And um, from my perspective, it's hard to overlook the cultural aspects. And I wanna give you a couple examples that directly relate to Reaper. So some great conversation here today about these innovation, uh, this potential for innovation. Uh, one that we haven't discussed, but is in uh, um, General Stutzroom's paper is on automated, automatic takeoff and landing. Great idea. So all of a sudden we can take these reapers, deploy them to distributed locations. Awesome for adaptive basing, great. So glad the Air Force is doing these experiments in 2021. Well, the Army has been doing automatic takeoff and landing with the MQ-1 Sky Warrior since I think about 2006, 2008. Now we can argue about all the reasons that it's expensive. You know, as Todd said, you, know, you gotta get the money, you gotta give up something. I think the Air Force has had trouble getting money for automatic takeoff and landing before. But let me tell you this, when the Army was doing this around 2006, 2008, there was no shortage of cash. And um, I think that that was really a missed opportunity for the Air Force. Um, another example uh, relates to um, air to air missiles. So I, it, you know, it, the community that, you know, as General Stetsreen pointed out, the community that is built up around the Predator and the Reaper is very innovative inherently. And so they've been doing all this kind of stuff all along. It's just that it hasn't gotten the institutional backing, backing and the funding to support it. So going back, you know, General Deptula knows these stories well. We put Singer missiles on Predator right after 9-11. They were flying over the skies of, Afgh of, of Afghanistan and Iraq. And actually, I think Iraq, and actually one even got into a dogfight with a MiG. Now it did lose. It did get shot down. But, you know, it just demonstrates this idea that this technology has been around for a while and it suggests that other factors besides just um, technological maturity or funding could be at play here. And that's where the cultural piece comes in. But this is far from hopeless. I think we've seen lots of evidence that the Air Force has tremendous capacity for innovation and particularly for drone innovation. So there are, you know, there are these mix of cultural trends going on. And um, on the positive side, especially in recent years, we've seen lots of experimentation with like programs with all kinds of crazy names from gremlins to LCAS to whatever you want to call it, looking at how do we develop a new generation of drones that can operate in A2D, A2AD environments. And that's all been really promising. 
Um, and so I do think that, you know, the Air Force has to be mindful, leadership has to be mindful and deliberate about these cultural norms within the service and how they may conflict and come into tension with one another. And also be very intentional about what it does to mitigate that and ensure that the organizational capacity for innovation continues. And I think the very heart of that is the people who fly Reaper drones. I, I think that this community um, is a, a really important place for innovation. And the Air Force has a tremendous opportunity as we look to the future to refocus all these Reaper assets in theaters where they haven't spent a lot of time before, like whether it's Latin America or the Indo-Pacific. I, I, I frankly don't understand why there aren't more there now. And also exploit new CONOPs, TTPs, and technology. And the way that you get at all this stuff is with um, the current Reaper squadrons that are out there today. They're in the best position to do this. They're first movers, early adopters, um, and they are a central source of bottom-up innovation in the service. So um, the Air Force leadership needs to do what's necessary here, which is support um, continuing to produce and um, fly the Reaper and also support the, the people who fly these, these airframes every day in combat and who are just absolutely critical for any kind of unmanned innovation going forward, whether it's drones themselves or even broader aspects of artificial intelligence. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks for that, uh, Caitlin. And uh, thank all of you once again for those uh, insightful perspectives. Uh, we've had some uh, innovative thoughts just within the last 15 minutes. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, bore down a little bit more on a couple of the points that you made, um, but I'm gonna uh, uh, change the the program here a bit because I wanna, there have already been several great questions flow in on uh, text. And what I wanna do instead of dominating this with my questions is to uh, open this up to the uh, audience because we've got uh, a quite a good audience out there. So um, those of you who would like to ask a question, uh, please uh, go ahead and use the raise hand function uh, on the app that you have down there. Uh, and as you're doing that, um, I will, uh, I'll kick off with a couple that uh, um, we've already received. Um, so for the crowd, here's one from Jonathan Songer. I'm a former MQ-1 and MQ-9 pilot. Uh, I flew one or the other platform from 2003 through 17 while I was on active duty uh, and a reservist till uh, 2021 and then again as a GOCO pilot. Most of us in this room are probably familiar with the Azerbaijan-Armenian event and the disruptive effect of both armed UAVs and loitering munitions. Why does the Air Force appear reluctant to integrate ALE and loitering munitions? Uh, for example, an L3 Harris multi-tube launcher slinging Raytheon coyotes that are mesh networked back through the MQ-9B channel would increase survivability and lethality. Anybody on the panel want to uh, feel that one? Yeah, I'll step in. <clears throat> I think I think Caitlin actually uh, formed the basis for for any. Uh, uh, adaptation or modification or addition uh, uh, that will cost some money that might make uh, MQ-9 more durable. I think that's at the root of this is there has been a very stale flight plan in terms of uh, modifying, modernizing, adapting uh, the MQ-9. So uh, 
there's many good ideas that are out there that uh, whether it's, it's uh, for example, having some very small focused uh, ordinances uh, that are precision, but allows so many effects to be uh, carried on one airframe, but it's a matter of cash. It's a matter of money. It's a matter of having the, uh, the uh, flight plan for the airframe uh, that, that will be supported. Uh, I think just this discussion we're having today with to hear the alignment of perspectives on this weapon system may help to rethink, you know, how can you make this even better uh, than what it is today for a couple decades ahead? Yeah, and uh, Dave, I'll, I'll add that um, it seems like the, at least from the Navy side, you know, the, what's made them think about the MQ-9 is the compelling mission, you know, gap that they have, right? So this gap in ASW, the growing gap in airborne early warning are things that are causing them to, to rethink how they approach that mission and looking at the MQ-9. So having the MQ-9 be able to do something that another platform does is less compelling, I think, to these leaders that have to make budget choices. But if it's filling a gap that there is no other real solution for, that's that seems to be the a, a big driver. So I think that's one thing to focus on is the idea of ALE is terrific. Um, I think the Army, which stopped buying uh, more Gray Eagles, <laughs> uh, is looking to use Rotary Wing to go do that. So they're saying, well, why would I take away this mission from the Rotary Wing community? Um, you know, but I think if we look at ALE being used in some mission where like, you know, airborne early warning, ASW, uh, surveillance and strike and, or surveillance and targeting inside of a very contested environment, like in the Indo-Pacific, those are maybe options we can push to try to get policymakers to, you know, fi find the money. Basically, there's got to be a compelling need that does not duplicate an existing manned platform, it seems. Okay, this is kind of interesting. You know, this crowd is used to uh, Merck chat, I think. So I'm not getting any raised hands, but I've got tons of, uh, of text questions. Uh, he, here's one from uh, uh, a good friend and someone uh, who's got recent experience at Northcom, but from a coach, uh, uh, Pete Fessler. Um, there are many efforts within industry and the services to connect platforms to platforms in a point-to-point -point fashion. For example, F-22 to F-35, KC-46 to 4th Gen, so on and so forth. It seems the MQ-9 could play a key role in shifting to a networked approach. Can we dive into this a bit more? Thoughts from the panel? Yeah, I'm happy to weigh in here. And I know Brian has done uh, important work on this and others as well. But, you know, I've had a paper series I've started on battle networks in the future force. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the question is getting right to the, the heart of the issue is we can't have these stovepiped linear networks anymore. Uh, serial networks where, you know, if any one, you know, element in the sensor to shooter kill chain is, is taken out or disrupted, then you break it, right? We can't afford that anymore. Um, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, others, they're onto us. <laughs> they know what to attack. It, it's got to be a kill web. It's got to be mesh networks uh, where there are many points through which you could connect. And, and that makes it disaggregated, distributed, and ultimately more resilient, right? Um, and yeah, I think platforms like the MQ-9 can serve an important role in that, uh, serving as these communication nodes, uh, putting packages on them uh, where they can, you know, translate across multiple uh, types of legacy stovepipe networks uh, and make them no longer stovepipe. Um, and I think that's an important capability, you know, as we try to build out, 
you know, Battle Networks for the Future and JADC2 because the idea that we could build entirely new systems uh, for JADC2 and that that would create the battle network of the future, that is unrealistic because for the foreseeable future, the vast majority of our, of our force is going to be made up of equipment we already have in our inventory today. I don't want to call it legacy equipment because that includes things like F-35s and F-22s. I mean, that is the majority of our force. Uh, and more importantly, when we go you know, into battle with our allies and partners around the world, they're going to be operating different equipment. They're going to be operating legacy equipment, and we've got to be able to integrate them into our mesh networks. And so, yeah, I think you know, long loiter platforms like the MQ-9 that can carry a variety of payloads, they're going to be you know, a key translator and enabler uh, so that we can make these battle networks much more resilient in the future. Yeah, and to, to build on what Todd said, um, right now the effort is mostly on trying to allow each platform to communicate on more networks to get a little bit more interoperability. So we're going to put Lake 16 on F-35, or we're going to use a software-defined radio and put some more cards in it so we can get some more waveforms onto you know F-22 or U-2. Um, you know, but that only gets you so far, right? Because there's only so much you can do with an existing radio. There's only so many cards you can put in for new waveforms. And software can allow you to maybe do some kind of translation on board, but that's going to be limited. So getting the MQ-9 or another platform like that, that's going to have maybe a much more interoperable set of uh, waveforms on it would allow you to kind of really add to the recomposability that's available in the force. So yeah, my F-35 can do uh, maybe Link 16, Mattel, and maybe TTNT, but that's you know only going to get you so far in terms of interoperability. But if you have an MQ-9 that does like 10 different waveforms and it can also translate between a larger number, then you really expand your options. And that's the problem we have is a lack of options for the commander. Okay, well, uh, along in the same line, uh, here's a question from Dan Miller. Um, for the panel, it appears that the RPA community is difficulty communicating our value to uh, the joint staff beyond direct kinetic effects. How can we effectively communicate the MQ-9's value in providing less quantifiable areas? Uh, I also less lethal. Uh, in other words, ISR contributions to join all domain command and control, so on and so forth in order to facilitate the changes needed for the platform to thrive uh, in a GPC-focused fiscal environment. Can I start that one? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail in that, except to say, uh, and you know this, uh, General, that many people do not understand uh, the RPA. They certainly don't understand what the MQ-9 Reaper does unless you go to a unit and observe their operations and talk to the people. Uh, and what we found in this study is that there are actually very, very few uh, hardworking, but general officers in the US Air Force who've done that. And, and that's, a, that's a problem. And uh, so the, the community itself can't just uh, subjectively go out there and, and uh, take a roadshow and convince people that they're of value all the great things that are done. I mean, we measure that in combat effects, but uh, we need more of uh, across the services, military leadership to see what's happening in this unmanned age, which includes the remotely piloted piece and increasing levels of autonomy 
these are the on-ramp people and to be able to see what they've achieved, uh, we need more of that. And that's where the communication needs to be uh, fixed. Just to pile onto that, um, completely agree with it all. We need more Air Force leadership that has experience with drones. We're starting to get that 20 years later. We do have general officers with drone experience, but we need more of that. And we need, one of the ways we can do that is we can have more than one wing for RPAs. Um, and even if the wing is smaller, it just creates a more of a leadership pipeline to get those people into general officer billets where they can actually make change and be involved in some of these budget decisions. And furthermore, this isn't just about, I think, preserving like this organizational capacity for innovation in the Reaper. I think um, <clears throat> that, that the RPA community has a uni is, is uniquely positioned to address some of these next generation A2, AT, A2 AD challenges and competition. Um, because if you think about a typical, you know, I'm not an operator, but I have talked to a lot of these, these operators. And this is my sense. If you think about it, traditional pilot, um, it's, a, it's a lot of time as an individual learning your tactics, focused on the cockpit, um, being an individual, mastering your skills. Um, if you compare that to um, a Lieutenant Reaper pilot, um, right from the get-go, he might be reaching out and touching, picking up the phone to talk to the intelligence community or State Department or any number of other organizations. And so it's a completely different mindset. Um, he's working on something that looks more like a computer than, than a hands-on stick and throttle. And so um, it's, a, it's a different mindset. And I think it's a mindset that lends itself to some of these technologies we're starting to experiment with. Um, if you think about what is JADC2, it's getting air and space and cyber and maritime to talk to each other. Well, this is something that Reaper pilots are kind of already thinking about. Like, you know, who can I reach out and touch to get this mission to work? I'm sitting in this ground control station. Um, and... Uh, I think as we move to the future that actually this community, and, and I actually also will say, I don't know where else the Air Force thinks that kind of mentality is going to come from. Like we have this very small 13-0 multi-domain career field. My impression of it is it is very small. It's not doing that well. And when these guys get to the AOC to do multi-domain, they're just doing AOC jobs. So it's not clear to me that, you know, the Air Force is starting to talk the talk with the experimentation but the, the real long pole in the tent is institutionalizing that ability for innovation. And I think, I think that's in those, um, those, those Reaper wings and I wing the Reaper wing. I think there needs to be uh, more opportunities for them to get into leadership to, to kind of make that a more self-perpetuating cycle. Okay, very good. Here's another one that kind of fits right into the discussion that's been ongoing. Um, it, it's from, an anonymous attendee, but actually he provided his name and his location. He's active duty. I'm going to keep him uh, anonymous to protect him. The idea of demonstrations to communicate relevance as more tangible than a PowerPoint slide was mentioned earlier. What are your recommendations to effectively message future demonstrations? I would say uh, one thing, uh, the Navy just did this integrated battle problem uh, with unmanned systems two months ago, three months ago, where they brought the MQ-9 out alongside other unmanned systems to go do a series of missions um, at the high end. So these were high-end missions, anti-submarine warfare, ISRNT, um, where the, uh, the unmanned system was employed for the full 
to support a full kill chain, you know, whether the unmanned system does the whole kill chain is separate, but um, to support an entire kill chain, not just doing kind of isolated uh, events. Uh, I think that's kind of the thing you got to do is show the unmanned system in use as part of an overall kill chain to show that well, we've figured out how to integrate this. It's not just an independent capability that has its own niche mission. Very good. Here's one from uh, Stefan Otto. Will the Marine Corps and the Air National Guard, Air Force MQ-9s and GCSs be able to cross work to allow workload sharing and true jointness? In other words, Air National Guard, MCE, GCS support of Marine Corps launched MQ-9s. Now, I know that's not uh, an answer. Maybe one of us up here, it, it, it's more of a detailed, we need an active duty dude or dudette to answer that one. But it's a great question. I just throw it out there that it, it is something that needs to be considered uh, uh, and a bit of an editorial. It seems to me that we've moved further away from Goldwater Nichols since 1986 and closer to it. Um, and we need to come up with uh, better ways to uh, to integrate. So a uh, great question, Stefan. I'll, I'll leave that up to uh, your... Uh, um, active duty Air Force buddies on the air staff or down at ACC uh, uh, to, to answer. Um, let's see here. Man, there are so many here. Here's one from uh, uh, Christopher uh, Engelken. If the Air Force decides to divest to invest by retiring the MQ-9, what would replace the MQ-9 so COCOMs continue to have persistent ISR and precision strike capabilities. Will the MQ-9 be replaced by a low observable armed RPA that can operate in a contested degraded environment? Thank you. Right now, the Reaper is irreplaceable for counter VEO operations. We just did a big study at RAND on this, and we, took, we put together like 40 vignettes looking at different CVO, VEO contexts. And we said to ourselves, how, what is the baseline way we would operate in this scenario? They'd be things like, I want to go to ISR to go see what the Chinese are doing in South America, for example. And we would do a baseline scenario. How would we do that today? And then we try to say, how can we drive the cost down and do it differently? Well, as you can imagine, most of the baseline scenarios were Reaper and most of the, the efforts to drive down cost were kind of, you know, it was a reach. It was hard. It was like, I don't know, unattended ground sensors. I, you know, I don't know. So when you look short term, there aren't easy replacements for Reaper, particularly in the CVEO space. There's certainly like complementarity between Reaper and some of the other like man, uh, light attack or manned assets, but it there is no short term replacement for it. Well, and if I could jump in here, I, I think the implicit assumption is if you were to retire the MQ-9 in the next eight years or so, the implicit assumption is that somehow the demand for ISR is going to go down. Um, because, you know, Caitlin's right. There, there is no replacement. There's nothing in the pipeline right now that's going to provide that kind of capacity uh, for ISR. Um, so if you're willing to bet that we're not going to need to do as much ISR, um, sure, you know, you could, you could try that. Um, but realistically, the demand's not going anywhere. Uh, the demand is, is more than likely going to go up. Uh, in the coming years. And so I, I don't think we have a viable replacement. I, I think we absolutely need to get programs started 
uh, for more, you know, remotely piloted ISR aircraft, uh, things that can be, you know, uh, lower uh, observability. Uh, we absolutely need to get those programs going and they should be additive to the fleet that we have today. They, they should not be, you know, substituting, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Hey, Todd, how about space? I mean, I think the assumption is that somehow the combination of commercial and proliferated LEO space is going to fix this problem. What, why would that now be the case? Yeah, you know, you can do a lot from space, uh, but what you are limited with uh, is revisit rates, right? Uh, and so, you know, to do ISR from space, you got to be in a low orbit, uh, you know, just uh, so you're not so far away that you can't make out anything. When you're in low Earth orbit, uh, you're inherently moving relative to the ground. You're orbiting about every 90 minutes or so. Uh, and so, yeah, you can put up hundreds, thousands uh, of satellites to do ISR. Um, and you could have multiple satellites passing over a particular region at any given time with a, a really large constellation like that. But they're looking through soda straws. Uh, and so they can look at small areas on each pass. It, it is not a direct substitute from having a loitering platform in the area that can do wide area 24-7 surveillance. It I mean, you know me, I'm a space guy. You can look behind me and <laughs> see where my heart is. It's not a direct substitute. You know, space lets you do some things that, you know, airborne platforms can't do, like look way behind uh, enemy air defenses and do it in peacetime in a non-threatening way. Um, but it's not a substitute for long loitering uh, airborne ISR platforms. Um, well, thanks for that, Todd, and uh, excellent discussion. Uh, unfortunately, folks, we've come to the end of our rollout of this report, Reimagining the MQ-9 Reaper. And I got to tell you, this is the most engaged audience we've ever had. So um, I, we all appreciate your participation. We're going to be doing a podcast on the same subject. Uh, I think we're going to do that like the first week in December. But I don't want to shut the discussion off. What I'd like to do is continue to garner your inputs. Um, we'll have the, this session online later on today, as well as the report and uh, Stutz's uh, presentation. Uh, but um, I'd, I'd like to continue uh, to get a hold of your comments and ideas so we can uh, perhaps uh, generate some action on them. So please uh, feel free to contact us here at Mitchell Institute or send me an e email direct. It's uh, deptula.david at gmail.com. Uh, pretty easy to remember. So it was great to have Todd, Brian, and Caitlin with us today. Um, you all really provided some uh, great inputs. Uh, and uh, thank uh, all of you, as well as the audience, for joining us today. So from all of us at Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day. See you.